0: Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. I'm chair of the Psychology Forum, and I will be moderating today's program. And I'm very honored and pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Marlene Martin, M.D. She's an associate professor of clinical medicine at UCSF. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Martin.
2: Thank you, Dr. O'Reilly, and good evening, everyone. It's really nice to see you here. I'm excited about this talk because addiction is something that is near and dear to my heart, and I am sure it's also something that may resonate with you. We have family members, friends in our communities who are affected by addiction. That's why I'm going to talk today about the Addiction Care Team at San Francisco General Hospital. It's one of the first and few hospital-based addiction medicine consult service ser- services, and um, I'm really excited to share some of the work that we are doing. Today, I'm here representing my own views and not the views of my employer. Um, and the title of my talk is Fishbowls, Fentanyl Test Trips, and Patient Navigators, One Hospital's Team-Based Approach to the Overdose Epidemic. You've all seen the headlines. More than 107,000 people died last year of a drug Overdose. That number keeps getting higher every single year, and it's predicted to get even higher. That's the highest we've ever had it in a one-year period, and that's only limited to drugs, so substances like opioids, which include heroin and fentanyl, substances like stimulants, which include methamphetamine and cocaine. Add to that another half a million lives lost every year from alcohol and tobacco, and the crisis worsens. In California, San Francisco is one of the epicenters of our addiction epidemic. It has one of the highest rates of drug related overdoses in the state. To put this in perspective, in, during the first two years of the COVID 19 pandemic, two times more people died of a drug related overdose than of COVID here in San Francisco. The stories of the people behind these numbers make me really sad. It's devastating. But at the same time, I am hopeful that some of the innovative services that people are bringing to the table will help change the narrative and make things better for people. I'm here to share one of these with you, and that's the um, addiction care team. This is an intervention that we have at San Francisco General Hospital, which has resulted in decreasing mortality among people with substance use disorders by more than 50%. But before I tell you that story, I'd like to share with you why myself as a doctor in a hospital who practices general internal medicine got started in addiction. I trained at UCSF, and during my first year of training, I spent a lot of time working at the various hospitals, and I saw that so many of my patients were admitted with addiction. They had downstream consequences of addiction. They were bleeding, they had confusion, they had lung infections, they had skin and soft tissue infections, and they had heart infections related to their addiction. And I was very good at taking care of all of those things, but I rarely addressed what they were actually there for, what they needed me for, their addiction. If anything, I said what I saw other people around me do. You must stop drinking or you will die. You have to go to residential addiction treatment. And unsurprisingly, that never worked. People came back again and again. It was a revolving door. And every time they came back, they were worse. I felt like I was putting Band-Aids on people. They were coming back, and I was just covering them in more temporary Band-Aids. It didn't feel good. And it was really midway through my intern year, my first year of medical training, when things changed for me. I remember taking the elevator down to the emergency room. I had a new patient to admit, a young woman. I was worried about a procedure that I had to perform on her, a paracentesis to take water out of her belly. And then I saw her lying there amidst a sea of patients, and I froze. She was young, just like me. The whites of her eyes were yellow, nearly matching the color of her beautiful eyes. Her belly was so swollen with water, she looked pregnant. She had alcohol-related hepatitis. I I got to know her really well over the next few months. I took care of her during that hospitalization. I then took care of her in clinic because I became her primary care doctor. During that time, I learned that she'd been drinking to cope with depression after a divorce. I learned that she'd never been in care. I met her ex-husband and her mother who came with her to appointments. I saw her liver disease worsen, the confusion settle in, her skin t- turn ashen. Her l- kidneys fail and, end up, and she ended up on dialysis. I kept hoping for a miracle. I talked to all of the doctors that I could, begging them that she could, that she could receive a liver transplant. But the answer was no. I just wanted her to be able to see her little one start kindergarten. And unfortunately, a few months later, she passed away. And caring for her and others like her, my my first year of training, really motivated me to want to do something for my patients that address the root cause, that addressed the whole person. And for me, taking care of somebody with an addiction, it means this is in my lane. This is something I need to be able to talk to, to the person in front of me about if I want to improve their health. And so I'm going to share with you today a bit of background on addic- addiction and then talk about the addiction care team and leave you with a couple of things that you can walk away from here to be an ally in addressing our country's overdose and addiction epidemic. First, I'd like to start off with a couple of definitions. Substance use does not, is not synonymous with addiction. Let's actually try that in this room if you drink alcohol and feel comfortable sharing, please raise your hand. I'm going to include myself here. I can assure you that most people who have their hands raised do not have an alcohol addiction. And that is because there is a spectrum of substance use. That spectrum, let's hang on with the alcohol example, includes people who are not drinking, people who use socially or intermittently Then it's people who have at-risk use. These are individuals who are drinking in higher amounts than is recommended. They're at risk for developing some of those complications related to addiction, but they do not yet have them. And then we have people with an addiction. Addiction is synonymous with the medical term that we use in, in, in documentation, substance use disorder. These are individuals generally who are having increased consumption from use, And as they have increased consumption, they then develop harmful consequences from use. You will also note that I said substance use disorder and not substance abuse or words like addict. And the reason that I'm using substance use disorder, one, it's a medical term. Two, it is a non-stigmatizing phrase. When we use stigmatizing words like addict or substance abuse, it actually results in worse care for that individual. There are studies that have shown this, that if we read these words, we will bias ourselves before we even meet a patient and the patient feels that they end up leaving the hospital. Therefore, you'll hear me use person-first terms throughout this talk, and I encourage you to do the same. And then the last part of the definition that I want to cover that you'll hear me use is the term unhealthy use. Unhealthy use includes a spectrum of people who have at-risk use and an addiction. So to put this all together, the formal definition of addiction by the American Society of Addiction Medicine is that it is a treatable, chronic medical disease that involves complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. There's two parts of the d- definition that I want to draw your attention to. The first is that, is that it is a chronic medical disease that is treatable. Again, this is my job as a doctor to have to address with my patients. It is something that the medical system did not own for a long time. We left it to other individuals to do it, nothing happened. Therefore, it is something that I can do something about whether I practice in clinic or I practice in a hospital setting, and it's treatable. So there are tools that I can acquire to offer patients with substance use disorders. And then really at the heart of addiction is that this this part of the definition, which is continued use despite harmful consequences. These are individuals who have an addiction. And the good news is people can move along that continuum, right? If they have an addiction, they can move into having at-risk use. They can move into having... Perhaps there's people who know that they need to be abstinent in order to not um, develop the harmful consequences so people can move along the spectrum over the course of their lifetime. I'd now like to share with you the story of our country's overdose epidemic, and I want to share that through this graph. This graph shows opioid overdoses from 1999 to 2019. And the story this tells is that the first wave of the opioid overdose epidemic started with prescription opioids. You see that in the light blue line, and you see that as regulations around prescribing changed, that line plateaus. You then see the darker blue line. These are deaths related to heroin. So as regulations tighten, people turn to heroin use. And then finally, you see a purple line with a big upslope. These are deaths related to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. This is something that continues to affect us today locally with a ton of fentanyl that is resulting in really contributing to the massive crisis that we have. But the story doesn't end there. We're also thought to be in the fourth wave of the overdose epidemic. In this wave, is seeing that people are dying of multiple substances in their body. So substances like alcohol and benzodiazepines, mixing cocaine with opioids, um, with benzodiazepines. And then we're also seeing that people are also dying in increasing numbers just from stimulants alone, especially stimulants like methamphetamine. The reason I bring this up is that our... National attention, a lot of the media has focused on only opioids for good reason, right? Like fentanyl is contributing to lots of these deaths. That's what I just said. But focusing solely on opioids does not tell the whole story. And we really need a multi-pronged approach to address our addiction epidemic. I'd like to touch on fentanyl a little bit more uh, and explain really why, why it's harming individuals. Fentanyl is a really strong opioid. It's 50 times stronger than heroin. It's 100 times stronger than morphine. Not only that, it's everywhere. We're calling the drug supply that is available right now a toxic drug supply. And the reason for that is that there are so many versions of fentanyl out there. People don't know if the fentanyl they're getting today is the same fentanyl they got last week, maybe the one last week was not that strong, maybe the one this week is stronger, therefore that puts them at risk for overdose. And it's not only that it's everywhere if somebody is choosing to use opioids, it's also in other substances, people. It's sometimes contaminating pills. It's sometimes contaminating substances like cocaine. I want to share a story with you that, illustrates this example. I was attending on the medicine service a couple of months ago, and I get called to admit a person in the emergency department who is really sleepy. Over the course of the next two days, I find out that he was working as a security guard at night. He had a bunch of shifts in a row. He then was in the process of moving apartments. He's just trying to make ends meet trying to move to a safer neighborhood. His asthma was acting up. He was exhausted, but he had to keep going. I can imagine many of ourselves have found ourselves in stressful situations like this where we just need to keep going. Maybe we use caffeine. Maybe we use something else to cope with all of that. So he's someone who once in a while used cocaine. So he took cocaine before, before one of his shifts, thinking that this would get him through the night. And unfortunately, that cocaine was laced with fentanyl, so he ended up collapsing. But thankfully, somebody w- was nearby and called 911, and emergency medical services came. They gave him naloxone, the overdose reversal agent, which I'll also show you again at the end. And they brought him into our emergency room. He was devastated. He saw that his urine toxicology screen confirmed that there was fentanyl and this was the cause of why he couldn't really remember a lot of what had recently happened. And he you know, decided right then and there, he was very motivated that he didn't want to use this again. He also wanted to educate others and he left the hospital with information and tools to be able to do that. In addition to stimulants and fentanyl really driving these overdose deaths, up in the last couple of years, so has COVID. COVID has made everything worse. What has COVID done to many of us? It isolated us. It resulted in increasing depression and anxiety. We see kids going to emergency rooms in numbers we haven't even seen with mental health crises. These are all drivers of addiction. They're drivers of substance use. And that's a reason that we have seen, for example, a 54% increase in alcohol sales at the beginning of the pandemic, so much so that we saw aluminum cans run out. We also saw in, the, in research that people did that, especially among women, there was a big increase in alcohol use disorder. And so we saw what, what COVID did in terms of disrupting some of the programs that people who were in recovery attended Some of them may have returned to use. New substance use disorders developed. So as we tell all of this story, the picture that I'm trying to paint here is that overdose deaths are the tip of the iceberg for our country's addiction epidemic. That um, beneath that iceberg is really a story of different substance use patterns and different substances that people are using. But the other part of it, and I think the part that is really important for all of us to understand, uh, is that it's not a choice, that there are so many reasons that people are using substances, and these include stories of criminalization, so much trauma that people have experienced, people being unlinked to care, and experiencing pain of all kinds, There's another story that I'd like to share with you. Early on when we started the Addiction Medicine Consult Service, it was in the first couple of months, I remember that the surgeons called me to see a patient. I walked over to the hospital. I knocked on her door. I walk in. It's dark in there. As soon as I walk in, she turns away from me and looks toward the window. She didn't really want to talk to me. I sit on the edge of her bed, and I introduce myself. I ask her what she would like to be called. I share with her that I'm one of the doctors that focuses on drugs and that I can help her feel better while she's in the hospital. I can help her get the help that she needs, that she wants, even if it's just being able to stay in the hospital to get her care. We start her on methadone because she has an opioid use disorder and she becomes more comfortable, and we build some trust over the next couple of days. She shares that she's come to the hospital before, but she generally leaves before she even gets a room in the hospital while she's in the emergency room because she's had such terrible experiences with the healthcare system. They've been stigmatizing. They re-traumatize her. Over the next couple of days, she also shares with me that her first substance use began at the age of eight. She was given substances by her parents, the very people who are supposed to love and protect her. She experienced a lot of trauma during her childhood. And one night, she left home. She ran away, leaving her twin sister behind. And she had a lot of guilt over that. Her substance use, she shared, was really entrenched in the fact that she was using heroin to take away the emotional and the physical pain that she felt, and she was using stimulants, methamphetamine, to escape moments. And I share this story with you because I think it's really important to understand why people are using substances, because we cannot see that on the outside. I think it takes having empathy and leaving space for that narrative and you know we i think there's a lot of different there's a lot of different thoughts people have in an addiction and in in our city sometimes we walk by and there are people who who might be using i think most people do not want to be using there's a lot that has led to that situation that they find themselves in and a magic pill is not the answer It really takes time to address the addiction. It takes time to get linked into care and to address the trauma and the other reasons that are driving substance use. And a lot of what we try to do in the hospital is begin to have people begin that path, begin that journey, and link them to resources and medications and treatment to do that. Now I'm going to switch gears and talk about what we actually do as part of the addiction care team at San Francisco General. The addiction care team is located at the General. The General is San Francisco's county hospital. It is in the heart of the mission. It's a level one trauma center. It has a 24-hour psychiatric emergency service. What I love about the General and why I choose to work there is we see everyone who comes through the door. We serve all populations and especially have a big focus on uh, oppressed populations, a lot of people who are on public insurance. I love the people who work there who are mission-oriented, and I love that we've been able to start the addiction care team there. The addiction care team started in January 2019. And it started thanks to a needs assessment. We we put together a bunch of data. We are a pretty nerdy bunch after all. And we also got grant and philanthropic funding that has resulted in our service running through today. What the data showed when we were making the case for the consult service was that in 2016, nearly one in three of all people who were in the hospital had an addiction. That's a big number. We also talked to patients, and we found that nearly all of them wanted some kind of help related to their addiction. And to me, this was surprising. You think of patients coming to the hospital. I shared with you that many people with addiction don't like coming to the hospital because they've been treated poorly in the past. And so they're coming for infections, they're coming for heart problems, yet most of them wanted help. So the hospitalization is a pivotal touchpoint. We also interviewed healthcare workers, and we found that more than 80% of them thought we needed to transform our approach to addiction care and thought that a consult service would be the way to accomplish this. So what is ACT and how does it actually work? I'd like to share that with you. We have an interprofessional team, and that team is designed based on those um, interviews that we did with patients and also the surveys that we gave to staff. They shared with us what they needed help with. So this is how um, the team was designed. The first part are, of, um, that I'm going to focus on are our doctors and nurse practitioner, the doctors and nurse practitioners focus on assessing people for a substance use disorder. They diagnose people and then they offer treatment. Treatment spans both medications and some behavioral interventions. This is key. When I did medical school, when I did not learn anything about addiction. We barely touched on it in residency. All that I have acquired, I've had to do on my own. Thanks to lots of mentorship. Things are beginning to change, they're beginning to teach some of this in nursing schools, beginning to teach it in medical schools. So I have hope for the future, but we have a lot of catching up to do, especially for people who have been in practice for a long time. We have a huge need to expand this workforce. In the picture here, you have um, one of our addiction medicine fellows and one of the attendings on the consult service who are working together to see a patient. We also have patient navigators. Patient navigators are a fairly new role in healthcare. I think of them as cheerleaders and advocates for patients. Having been in a patient myself and a family member to patients, it's really hard to navigate our healthcare system. We all need a friend, we need guidance, and that's what our navigators do. A lot of the times they help cut the red tape that exists in order to access addiction care. They do that so that people can stay in the hospital, but they do that also so that we can impact care beyond the hospital walls to get people into the programs that they would like. Um, In this picture, it's one of our patient navigators, Rachel, who previously worked on the addiction care team who's putting together a kit for a patient. We also have a group of nurses. The nursing program that we have is really special because even among some of the other addiction medicine consult services in the country, there is not a nursing role. Our nurses focus on seeing everyone in the hospital who has unhealthy substance use. We're one of the few hospitals who screens everyone for for unhealthy use. And so there's a big focus on prevention. So our evaluation team, thank you, um, Our team is new, and we have to measure what impact different team members, different interventions are having so we know how to scale this, and we can share this with other hospitals so that they can also develop their own services. And this picture is one of our nurses, and she's on her way to give a patient an injection for alcohol use disorder. Our recipe for success is simple. We ask our patients what their goal is. For some people, it's abstaining. They're ready to make a change. They're done they want medications, and or they want a residential addiction treatment, for example. We also ask them what they have tried in the past, what has worked, what didn't, and why. Based on what they share, we offer people a menu of options that's in line with what their goals are. And then finally, we create that linkage so that people are able to move on with their plans and that it affects their daily lives because we can do everything we want in the hospital to make sure they get empathetic care, that people listen, but we really want to impact what their care looks like after they leave. How does this actually look like in real time? I want to share with you what a day one of my days looks like when I'm on the addiction care team. I start my day early in the morning. I walk into the ACT room. I find our navigators, nurse practitioner, our nurses, some of our trainees, our addiction medicine fellows. We're getting a lot of calls from people in the morning. These people are some of the doctors and nurse practitioners who are taking care of patients. They call us about people we've already seen who've been there a couple of days to see what the plan's going to be. They call us for new patients. We then print out our list of patients, and we go through them one by one as a team, everyone gives their expertise, and we develop a plan for the patient based on the patient's goals. We then decide who's going to go see who. Sometimes it's one of our team members. Sometimes all of us go to see someone. I usually run off with our addiction medicine fellow right after this huddle, and I start my day. We knock on the first door. We go in. We introduce ourselves. We sit eye level with the patient. This is probably one of the most important parts of the work that we do, just treating people with respect, looking them in the eye, asking them how they want to be called, and making sure they get good care. Whenever I'm leaving the room after we talk, sometimes it's 15 minutes, sometimes it's longer than an hour. Almost every single time, people will stop me And just thank me for being there. Thank me for listening to them with respect. And they're almost always surprised that there is a doctor, a healthcare worker, talking to them about their addiction. And I do this again and again for 10 patients a day. Sometimes we have 20 patients, but we have a few different team members. So we divide up all of the patients and and go about the day. Some of the treatment that we offer... I'm gonna go through on this slide. Um, the first part of that is empathy. It sounds so simple, but this is really at the core of the care that we provide. There was a young man who came in uh, a couple of months ago, and he shared that he had a lot of shame because he was still using fentanyl, and he'd been wanting to connect with his family. He had been really lonely through all of COVID and just wanted to move back home, back to the East Coast. Um, but he wanted to do that when he stopped using. We talked about that over the you know, the course of the hospitalization and gave him a phone, and he actually ended up calling his mom. His mom and his sister flew out here. They rented a car, and they drove across the country. He didn't have an ID, so that's why they ended up driving across the country. Um, but just what a simple thing like talking to someone and giving them a phone can do to help them achieve their goals. These are the kinds of things that we can do in the hospital. We also offer medications for addiction treatment, particularly for alcohol and for opioid use disorder. There's pretty effective medications. I shared with you that a lot of physicians, a lot of healthcare workers didn't actually learn this in their training. That's why it's nice to have a team of experts who's able to make these recommendations. A lot of our work also involves educating others um, because we can't see every patient who's in the hospital with an addiction, so we do a lot of education with our residents and fellows to make sure they have the the skills and equip them when they're done with their training. I'd like to focus a little bit on opioid use disorder medications. We have really effective treatment. This treatment reduces mortality by over 50%. And it's really underutilized. Less than 30% of people who have an opioid use disorder are on one of these evidence-based medications. I'm really proud to share that on our team, more than 70% of the people with an opioid addiction are on medications. And then finally, we have psychosocial treatment. Psychosocial is another word for behavioral treatment. This includes some of the things you may be familiar with, thinking about programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, residential treatment programs for people go for anywhere from 30 to 90 days and then go to step-down programs, and then there's harm reduction and contingency management, which I'm going to cover in a little bit more detail. Harm reduction. You may have seen some of this in the media recently, newspapers, newspapers. At its core, harm reduction is a set of interventions and education that reduces the harms related to substance use, and it promotes health. It was invented, um, brought to light by people who use drugs since the 80s, and it, there's a lot of evidence base behind this. Some of the harm reduction techniques that we focus on in the hospital setting are listed here. I'm going to go through detail in, for a couple of them. The first is review injection practices. We do this because people are coming into the hospital with infections on their arms, on their legs, related to injecting drugs. Some of them may not be ready to stop using or stop injecting. Think back to the reasons the drivers of substance use. They, they can, people can still make choices that promotes their well-being without being ready to give up substance use. So for these individuals, we actually ask them, how are you injecting? How are you cleaning? And we review with them how to reduce the harms from this. For people who are injecting and are ready to switch to behaviors that are um, healthier, that will will reduce their overdose risk, we um, share with them that they can actually switch from injecting to smoking substances. One of the biggest factors in overdose deaths, one of the biggest um, risk factors, is using alone. So for people who are using alone, we share a hotline for never use alone. This is a number that they can call. It's a national hotline staffed by peers where somebody will be on the other line. And if the person who is using overdoses, they send an ambulance. And finally, there's also... Fentanyl test strips and harm reduction kits. Um, We um, there's a lot of people, as I shared with you, who may be using cocaine, and sometimes there is um, fentanyl in there, and so they can actually test their substances before they use to see if there's fentanyl, and they make a decision about using. I know when I say this that there are probably lots of different thoughts out here about harm reduction. Are they promoting drug use? What are they doing? Why, why, you know, shouldn't you be helping people? But a lot of the evidence for harm reduction shows that, one, it reduces infections, infections like hepatitis and HIV. And then, two, it also shows that we can save lives, that we can reduce overdoses through harm reduction techniques. And then finally, a lot of the studies show that when people engage in harm reduction, they're actually more likely over time to decrease their substance use to go on treatment and to become abstinent, five times likelier than not engaging in harm reduction services. So this is a good investment for the long road. And more than anything, it meets people where they are, and it allows them to feel heard, to feel seen There's a harm reduction kit that's going to go around that you can see. Um, These are some of the supplies that we're able to give people. A lot of harm reduction is also education. It's not only for drugs. We can also do a lot of harm reduction education for alcohol. We um, partnered with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation here. They provide us all of the harm reduction supplies. So I'm really thankful for this collaboration by one of our community organizations. I promised you in the title of this talk, Contingency Management in Fish Bowls, So it's time to explain what that means. Contingency management is a behavioral intervention that rewards people for a desired behavior. So in the setting of substances, it means that it rewards people for not using. We have a pilot that we're doing at San Francisco General. It's called Project Impact. Dr. Aisha Appa, who's pictured here, is an infectious disease and addiction medicine doctor. And she is seeing people who are in the hospital for two weeks or longer who have an infection and who have an addiction. And what happens is if people stay in the hospital and are continuing to get their medication for their infection, so antibiotics, and they're not using substances, so they're getting tests every, every, every time she visits, They can actually draw more and more tickets from the fishbowl over time. And in the fishbowl are affirmations like, I respect others, I inspire others, I can overcome this. And then there's also gift cards so you can earn money. Contingency management is the best treatment that we have for people with stimulant use disorders. A lot of the medications that we have um, are off-label used for stimulant use, and they don't work that well. They work for a few people. And we have something that's a behavioral intervention that works. California is actually one of the first states in the country to be piloting contingency management in Medicaid. Um, and we're do- this is launching this year, so I'm really excited to see how that goes. One patient shared with Dr. Appa, I wouldn't be here without this program. I think that there is a urine but then there is a conversation and the relationship that we have. What are our outcomes based on these interventions that we are doing? First, our interventions reduce mortality. This table shows percentage of deaths among people with addiction in our hospital. In people who have an addiction but we have not seen, the death rate is 4.5%. For people who have been seen for us, the death rate is 2.6%. Now let's take the subset of patients who have an addiction and are coming into the hospital with an infection. That death rate is 8.6% for people that we don't see. For people that we see, it is 3.8%. This is a 56% relative reduction in death. This is huge. And the effects persist beyond hospitalization because for many of these patients, we actually saw some of this data is for up to a year after we saw them. So this is not in-hospital mortality. We've also done interviews with patients and with staff to figure out what is helping them through ACT and what is not helping, or what we can do better. Patients share that ACT supports future planning and recovery. One patient said, they brought me a variety of candy, but it wasn't just that. They brought me information. The information that they brought me was so I can go to school because being here has inspired me to want to do this, has inspired me to want to help, want to give back, and I want to be a part of this. I want to give a whole lot of love. Let me explain the candy reference uh, here. Um, A lot of people in the hospital, especially when they're using substances and then they're not using, their dopamine levels go way down. Um, the candy is just a little pick-me-up for people, and we only give that to people who do not have diabetes or reasons to not be having sugar. Um, our healthcare workers also feel supported by ACT. One doctor shared, it's hard to remember a life before ACT. It was haphazard and inconsistent and certainly not based on expert guidelines. I feel like our hospital, because of ACT, has become a safe place. My next steps for some of this work is really to make this the model of care across California and across the country so that no matter what hospital people go to, they can get respectful care. I want to leave you with the story of why I think that it's important that all hospitals have an addiction care team. I was attending last year with one of our fellows, and I got called to see someone in the emergency department. I noticed that he'd never been in our hospital before. But when the emergency doctor called us, he shared... This patient's asking for you. He wants to see you right away. I wondered, how the heck does he know about us? That first day, we got him feeling comfortable. And then the second day, I couldn't help it. I had to ask him because I was so curious. Hey, how did you hear about us? And he shared with me that ACT is word on the street, that everybody is talking about us, and it's not just one person. And for me, this is the biggest success in in, in in the consult service really the fact that people know that the, our hospital is a place where they can go to get really great care that is respectful and i hope the same for other hospitals across the country i'd like to leave you in the last few minutes of this talk with a couple of the things that you can do to be an ally in this work some of the opportunities really are i think to have empathy to when you see someone if you're frustrated to just think like, I got gosh, I wonder what happened to lead them there and to to leave room for that and remember that it takes time to get healthy because it took a lot for somebody to end up with an addiction. Please share what you learned today with others. Please educate. One, addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease. Two, there are innovative care models like ACT that are being developed what we've done in the past has not worked and is not enough. We need to do more and we need to do different. And then carry naloxone. This is naloxone, also known as Narcan. Um, I won't be teaching you how to use this today, but it's very, very easy to use. And you can go to CBHS Pharmacy. It's located at 1380 Howard, They will give you a free training and a free naloxone so that you can carry one in your backpack, in your bag, and save a life if you see someone who's overdosed. I'd like to thank a lot of the partners who um, make this work possible because it's really a community of people working in this space, and we all work together. And then finally, I'd like to thank our addiction care team members who day in and day out are in the hospital taking care of patient after patient. We've seen over 11,400 patients in the time that we've been around. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat>
1: thank you, Doctor. That was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed every moment of it. Does anybody have any questions? Um, yes.
0: Which areas of the country are the most resistant to this type of care? I, I probably know what you're going to say, but I'm just wondering and also what is a way forward to increase this availability?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's hard to say a specific area of the country because I think that this is something that's affecting. Us across America, whether you're in rural areas, there's a huge overdose epidemic in rural areas. We see it in urban areas too. So I think it's actually something that is that can be uniting us, and we can engage all of our efforts. But I think one of the reasons that this model of care is hard to, has not spread is because um, you heard me say that we're, we run based on grants and philanthropy, and there are no clear ways to fund this in the hospital. So people have to use healthcare dollars that are already being given to hospitals. And maybe not fund something else, stretch the funding to addiction. So we really have to create sustainable models and give um, and incentivize like health plans, incentivize Medicaid to be able to create funding systems for this. It's a little bit more complex than that, but um, really that's what needs to happen at the end of the day to make this work possible. And also a big focus on educating people who are currently in training, but then also people who have been in practice because. We need, um, we need all hands on deck. This cannot be left to just a group of addiction specialists.
0: Yes. Hi. Uh, so clearly our city leaders and lawmakers are fully aware of the challenge of drug overdose. And so what advice would you offer for them to um, transfer the people with the addiction uh, to accept the treatment and to go to the hospital seeking for help?
2: Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I think that California is leading the way in a lot of these. And we also have lots of examples from other countries with interventions that are working to save lives. New York, and also we can look to New York, for example, who, you know, last year opened the overdose prevention centers. And I know that's something that was on the ballot um, recently and that was not passed um, in California or was not... um, the governor did not sign in California, um, but I'm hoping that overdose prevention centers and other innovative models are things that we can turn to. There's more than 100 um, overdose prevention centers, and no one has ever overdosed in one of them.
1: Uh, we had a question that was sent a, as a text. Unfortunately, it disappeared on my phone, but I do remember it. Uh, it was regarding a, a, a mother was writing <clears throat> about her son who lives on the street who's a drug addict, He gets picked up uh, by the police, ends up spending a week or two in jail, comes out clean, comes over to Ralph, showers, steals something, and then goes back to the street. Where does she even start with him?
2: Yeah. This disease is something that affects the individual, and it also affects families. And these stories are hard, and it's really complex. We know that a lot of people who use substances are criminalized for their substance use, and that that affects Black and brown people in way higher rates. Twelve times the number of black people, eight to twelve times the number of black and brown people are in jail for substance-related causes than of white individuals. And so, um, and when people go to go to jail and they come out, even if they're not using, actually, it's one of the times where we are at the highest risk for overdose because. They have not been using their body lost that sensitivity they had to opioids, and so they're at really, really high risk. Um, and it's, it's hard when you're the person, right, who um, you're trying to help your son, and then this happens. but I think just being, just being there for him when he is ready, and continuing to offer him love and support and setting boundaries for, for yourself. A lot of people who I'm seeing a lot of people who drink alcohol or have anxiety can also get, uh, develop an addiction to, um, benzodiazepines. And it's also, it causes respiratory depression also. So when you use that with opioids and other, and alcohol, which also causes it can cause respiratory depression, all of these things add together and increase the risk for overdose.
1: Yes. Uh, over the past, uh, a few years, I've noticed that there's been more and more, um, it's, it's getting easier and easier to acquire drugs through, um, like prescription drugs through the internet. What's being done to, uh, to, to reduce that. I know, um, just when I was in college a number of years ago, more and more college students are picking up stimulants to get an edge over their studies mm-hmm. They're taking Adderall and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So how, and I have friends personally that, um, they got, you know, they, they became addicted to these drugs. Yeah. So what what's being done about
2: that? Thank you. That's a great question. I don't know all of the different policy measures that are taken um, focused on that, but I think it, just thinking about um, the current drug supply, just like the fact that fentanyl is in a lot of things that, that people are buying on the street and thinking that that is also something that can happen, right? People can actually, they don't know what they're getting. You really have to test your substances if you're going to use them. You should use them with somebody. Um, So focusing on some of the overdose prevention efforts, but then I think we also have to focus on prevention, right? We have to prevent addiction before it starts. We have to, and that really starts early on. It's like a lot of education. We have to prevent trauma. So how do we do that through schools, making sure people have safety net programs after school? So I think focusing on some of those um, and then doing a lot of education.
1: Well, okay. uh, Dr. Martin, I believe we're out of time. I want to thank you very much. That was absolutely a wonderful presentation. And uh, so thanks.
2: Thank
0: you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California,